Well, it's true. He did. About 30 years ago, he retired, and he has, he's been busier since then than, uh, than any of us involved in, in a wonderful ministry, first with Overseas Crusades, writing, developing uh, Bible studies for people all around the world. And a few years ago, he came to uh, live with us up here in Boise. Not with us personally, but I mean with, uh, with us uh, here in, in uh, this area. And we're just delighted to have him and Susan as a part of this uh, fellowship. I uh, heard a story one time about an 80-year-old gardener who described himself as an octogeranium. And <clears throat> I've always loved that phrase. I, I think of Vic when I, and Susan when I hear of that, that wonderful flower-like quality that uh, people can have at that age. Bob Hope said, one way to stay young is to hang out with older people. And... Uh, <laughs> Vic is one of those, Vic and Susan are two of those older people I love to hang out with. They're very dear and special friends. Uh, some of you may have seen that little poem in uh, Alice in Wonderland when <clears throat> Alice was asked to quote a poem by the caterpillar. And it goes like this. You're old, Father William, the young man said, and your hair has become very white. And yet you incessantly stand on your head. Do you think at your age this is right? In my youth, Father William replied to his son, I feared it might injure the brain, but now that I'm perfectly sure I have none, why I do it again and again. <laughs> you are old, said the youth, as I mentioned before, and you've grown most uncommonly fat. Yet you turned a back somersault in at the door. Pray, what is the reason for that? In my youth, said the sage, as he shook his gray locks, I kept all my limbs very supple. By the use of this ornament, uh, this ointment, one shilling a box, allow me to sell you a couple? You're old, said the youth, and your jaws are too weak for anything tougher than suet. Yet you finish the goose with the bones and the beak. Pray, how do you manage to do it? In my youth, said his father, I took to the law and argued each case with my wife. And the muscular strength which it gave to my jaw has lasted the rest of my life. <laughs> and this thing just goes on and on and on, as you know. Actually, what, what you may not know is that that poem was pilfered from um, Robert Sothi of, uh, of uh, Goldilocks and the, and the Bears uh, fame. The, the actual poem goes like this. I'll just read the last stanza. You are old, Father William, the young man cried, and life must be hastening away. You are cheerful and love to converse upon death. Now tell me the reason, I pray. I'm cheerful, young man, Father William replied. Let the cause... Thy attention engaged in the days of my youth, I remembered my God, and he has not forgotten my age. I love that. Uh, Vic was in his youthful 50s when he met Christ, and God has certainly not forgotten his age. Uh, I came across, uh, you'll pardon all the poetry here, I came across another poem recently about retirement, you know, some people really do believe that the chief end of man, if I can use that Westminster Catechism phrase, the chief end of man is retirement. Uh, there's the old joke about when life begins, you know, does life begin at conception, does life begin at birth, or does life begin when the kids move away and the dog dies? Uh, for some people, that's when life is supposed to end, uh, supposed to begin when in fact it ends. You know, people 
retire and they die. It's just a simple fact. Actuarial tables demonstrate that uh, that's true. And I picked up a poem some years ago that goes like this. Since I have retired from life's competition, every day is filled with complete repetition. I get up each morning and dust off my wits, go pick up the paper and read the obits. If my name isn't there, I know I'm not dead, so I get a good breakfast and go back to bed. Now, that's what we're going to talk about a little bit this morning, about what to do with uh, your age as you grow older. There are a number of other uh, aspects of family life that Paul is concerned with in this passage, but one that he underscores, I think, to, to our good is this idea of spending your life, using your life throughout the span of years that God gives you to, uh, to serve him. Uh, T.S. Eliot said, you know, old men ought to be explorers. As we age, we there, there's no reason really to lose that cutting-edge mentality, the, the capacity that God gives us to serve him acceptably, acceptably even as our physical strength begins uh, to wane. Now I want to begin reading. We're in 1 Timothy 5, for those of you who may be new this morning. And I would like to read uh, a rather lengthy section through verse 16, just to give us the background of uh, uh, Paul's argument. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. I uh, prefer that translation for this particular passage. Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father. Uh, The word for appeal here is the same word that's used for the uh, Holy Spirit. He is the paraclete, the one who's called in alongside. It actually means to encourage uh, another. Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather encourage him as you would your father. And younger men as brothers, the older women as, as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are widows indeed. But if any widow has has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family. That word piety is the word that we run into time and time again in 1 Timothy. It's translated religion in some translations. It's translated godliness. It's really the heart and and soul of authentic Christianity. It's it's that uh, gentle, kindly, and yet sturdy spirit that we manifest when the Spirit of God is in control of our lives. And what what Paul is saying here is that authentic Christianity uh, is revealed by a, by a care and concern for our parents. Uh, parents and grandparents. And to make some return to them, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. Look at all they've done for us, housing us, clothing us, feeding us as we grew up. Return the favor, Paul says. Now she who is a widow indeed and has been left alone has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. But she who gives herself to wanton pleasure, the word is actually a luxurious lifestyle. She who gives herself to that way of life is dead even while she lives. Can't, can't be a Christian. That's what he's saying. No Christian would do that. Prescribe these things as well so they may be above reproach. 
But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Even the pagans, Paul says, are aware of their responsibility to their parents. Let a widow be put on the list only if she's not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man. Actually, the phrase is adjectival. The idea is a one-man kind of woman. He's not saying she can only be married once. He's just saying that she must be faithful to the husband to whom she uh, is married or was married. In this case, he is deceased. Having a reputation for good works the word for intrinsically good activities. And if she has brought up children, uh, actually that some New Testament scholars tell us that that phrase refers to orphans rather than her own children. She's been concerned about the homeless, the outcasts, the helpless. She has shown hospitality to strangers, has opened her heart and her home to strangers. She has washed the saints' feet a symbol of humble service for both men and women. If she has assisted those in distress, if she has devoted herself to every good work, here Paul uses a different term for good, it actually means beautiful. Uh, those winsome things that, that, uh, that women do that are so uh, attractive tend to draw people toward their Lord. But refuse to put younger widows on the list for when they feel sensual desires and disregard of Christ, they want to get married, thus incurring condemnation because they have set aside their previous pledge. And at the same time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house. And not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies talking about things not proper to mention. Here's the origin of the old axiom that uh, idle hands are the devil's workshop. Therefore, I want widows to get married, bear children. Uh, keep house, the NASB says. But actually, it's an interesting word. Uh, it's the word for house, oikos. And then the word from which we get our word despot means house despot. In other words, house manager. Manager of the, of the uh, house. And give the enemy no occasion for reproach. For some have already turned aside to follow Satan. And if any woman who is a believer has dependent widows, let her assist them. And let, and let not the church be burdened so that it may assist those who are widows indeed. Now, uh, Paul, as you know, is writing to Timothy with regard to behavior within the house of God. And the house of God is not a church building. It is the people of God. You are the house of God, wherever you go. So what Paul is talking about here is how we should relate to one another within the family of God. And the section divides itself around two ideas. The first is the spiritual members of the family and how we should treat them. And then secondly, the suffering members of the family and how we should care for them. Everything pivots around those two general ideas. Now, the first issue that he considers is the spiritual members of the family and how to treat them. And the principle is this. Treat one another as you would treat family members of corresponding age. First lays out that that principle. Treat older women in the church the way you would treat your mother. Treat older men in the church the way you would treat your father. Treat young women in the church the way you would treat your sister. 
treat young men in the church the way you would, would treat your, your brother. Now, the problem in, in, in our society, and it was a problem in that society as well, is that most people come out of dysfunctional homes. So we don't know how mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters ought to be treated. I one of Gary Larson's cartoons one time depicting a seminar for functional families. And there was one person sitting out in the audience. And then, you know, all of us are dysfunctional in one way or another. And some of you have come out of severely dysfunctional families. You have no idea what a father or mother ought to be. You were slapped around and abused and mistreated and lied to and deceived and It's tough to know what a family ought to be. Well, what you have to do is go to the Word to find out what a family is. Those then become the parameters that we we work from. Annie Herring has a, a wonderful little song. Don't talk to strangers. Some of you may have heard it. Don't talk to strangers when you're far, when you are alone. And child, when you're afraid, just come running home. The problem is uh, we keep talking to strangers. Satan whispers to us through the media and through every conceivable means in order to uh, lie to us. What we have to do is go back to the Word, running home, and listen to what our Father has to tell us. In both the Old and New Testament, he says the same thing. Honor your mother and your father. That's the starting point. That's... As Paul puts it in Ephesians, that's the first commandment with a promise, that your days may be long on the, on the land which the Lord your God has, has given you. The, the Hebrew word for honor, and the Greek word has the same idea. It means give them weight, esteem them highly, grant significance to them, honor them. You see, in that, in that sense that they're weighty, they have dignity, make room for them, welcome them. As they welcomed you at, at birth, house them if necessary, the way they housed you. Feed them the way they, they fed you. Listen to them and what they have to, to say to you. See, once we reach the age of majority, we take on our own family. We no longer have to obey in that fundamental sense, but we must always respect them to the end of our days. Oddly enough, even parents that may have abused us. Remember when we were studying the story of uh, David and his flight into the uh, into the wilderness? And David was a was an abused child. We would say today he was an abandoned child. He was pushed away from the family and ignored and overlooked. There's a lot of evidence from his genealogy that David was illegitimate. He was an illegitimate child, and his father wanted nothing to do with him. He says in one in one place, though mother and father have forsaken me, yet the Lord has taken me up. And they, he was a hapless child. They, they didn't take care of him. <clears throat> and yet, when when Saul began to persecute his family because he was pursuing pursuing after David, they went to find David in the cave of Adullam, and he made that difficult, dangerous crossing of the Jordan River at, at, in the spring of the year at flood tide to get them into a safe place. And then once he was established on the throne, he brought them back and he cared for them to the end of his days. Honor them. Revere them. Love them. Respect them. Like Jesus on the cross in his moment of dire need. Says to John, Behold your mother. 
says to Mary, Behold your son. He linked the two together so that someone would take care of his mother Mary after, uh, after he was gone. Have to honor them. Respect them. Paul says in this passage, and here I'm reading from the NIV, if, if a widow has, ch- has children or grandchildren, these should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents, for this is pleasing to God. That's in 1 Timothy 5, 4. And then in 1 Timothy 5, 8, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, Pardon me, and especially for his immediate family, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. You know, there was a practice in uh, in Paul's day and in Jesus' day called korban. If you had some money and you wanted to be sure it didn't get into the hands of your parents, all you had to do was declare it korban. It's an Aramaic word that means dedicated. So like making out a living will, giving your money ahead of time to the temple. And uh, you could use it. Uh, In fact, you could use it up, but your parents couldn't use it. So you could declare that you're an indigent and you couldn't take care of your parents and the temple would have to take care of parents. And and our Lord rendered the most scathing rebuke, perhaps, uh, that he ever gave to anyone over that uh, issue of Korban. This is wicked, wrong. Family has responsibility to take care of aging parents. If we neglect them, we neglect the highest commandment in human relationships. Honor father and mother in the world is absolutely right to call us irresponsible. There comes a time when children have to take care of their parents. Uh, as most of you know, my, my oldest son is a, is a cop. He's a big guy. He's a, one of the SWAT team uh, leaders and... Uh, I love to ride with him. We go out at night and cruise around. And I was with him a couple of years ago, and there was a domestic situation. And he got out of the car, and I was sitting in the front seat. And as he as he went out on the the front yard, a guy came after him with a sledgehammer in his hand. And uh, I did what any of you fathers would do. I jumped out of the car. And I was going to give him a hand. I didn't know what this guy was going to do. And uh, Randy glanced out at me, at me out of the corner of his eye, and he said, "Dad, get back in the car." <clears throat> and suddenly, I realized there'd been a role reversal here. So. <laughs> I didn't have to look after him anymore. It's his turn to look after me. That's such a great feeling. Now that's the starting point: honoring mother and father. And in Scripture also tells us to honor our brothers and sisters, treat them as equals. Don't look down on our little brothers and our little sisters. And we need to protect our little sisters. Uh, Song of Solomon is one of my favorite Old Testament books. I've done a lot of thinking about it. And I think basically it's a book that's that's there to teach young men and women to say no until they get married. someday I'm going to write a little pamphlet on that book. It's a wonderful uh, poem. And at one point, uh, the daughters of Jerusalem, who are the young women who are being taught by this older, wiser, more mature woman, who understands what sex is all about, who knows that its place is in marriage, who has prepared herself for marriage by saying no until, until her wedding night, the daughters of Jerusalem say to, to her, what shall we do to prepare our little sister for marriage? 
And she says, this older, wiser woman says, if she's a door, then board her up. In other words, if she's promiscuous, if she's inclined uh, towards sexual promiscuity, then protect her. If she's a wall, reward her with silver, crown her with gold and silver. See, it's this picture of, of a family moving to rescue a younger sister who's in trouble. That's what God wants us to do. And uh, the same is true of little brothers. See? To take care of them, to honor them, to give them dignity, to attribute worth to them because they're part of the family. It's a place they can go where they can be protected. Now, if you take those things and just think about them and apply them to the spiritual family, because this is this is also the family. This is where we run home to when we're under attack. This is the place where we know we'll never be turned out, where we're, we can be accepted under any set of circumstances. And in that setting, we need to honor one another and show one another worth and, and dignity. What, what, is, what should be my attitude toward the older people in this congregation? Well, not to rebuke them sharply, but to encourage them. Life is hard as you get older. Uh, you know, it's a good day if you don't hurt somewhere when you get up in the morning. You, you older people know what I'm talking about. and You've carried the burdens of your life for a long, long time. You know, I think of, of Moses, who was, oh, he was elderly, well, well into his... Uh, into his second century, I suppose, at this point. And he uh, was holding up his arms. Uh, the story is told in Exodus 17. Amalek had attacked the rear guard of Israel. Moses began to intercede for Israel, held up his arms. And so his arms got tired. And whenever his arms got tired and they came down, then Amalek would prevail. And when he'd lift them up, Israel would prevail. Some of you have fathers or grandfathers who have been holding up their arms for a long time. And uh, Aaron and Hur saw that he was having difficulty, so they found a big rock, and they said, here, Moses, sit down. And and Aaron got on one side, and Hur got on the other side, and they held his arms up. It's a wonderful picture of the relationship that we ought to have to the older people in, in this congregation, not to rebuke them for those times when they may act silly or foolish and forgetful, but to lift up their arms, to encourage them. Carolyn and I have adopted that uh, symbol for Idaho Mountain Ministries. That's what we're doing. We want to hold up the arms of these uh, pastors that are flagging in, in energy and zeal, except we don't think of it in terms of Aaron and her, but him and her. Uh. Well, let's move on. So, treat... Treat the older men as you treat your father, as you should treat your father. The older women, as as Scripture enjoins us to to treat our mothers, treat all the brothers and the family as our brothers, all the sisters as our sisters. I think that one line is one of the is of great help to young men. How should you relate to other young women in the congregation? Just like you relate to your sister. Be exploitive, manipulative. The world's full of sexual conquistadors that are out to make their mark. It's so wrong. It's even found within the church, sad to say. It's so wrong. Paul says, treat the women as, as your sister. Now, uh, let's talk about the suffering members of the family and how to care for them. 
I've read the passage you're familiar with. Let me just say a few words about this this passage. In in this culture, culture in which Paul wrote, there were a lot of widows. In fact, Jesus said, uh, with reference to Elijah at his time, there were many widows in Israel. There always were in these ancient uh, cultures. Warfare decimated the male population. Uh, Men then as now died, uh, their lifespan was not as uh, long, you know. That's true today because men wear ties and women don't. <laughs> but it's, it's still true to some extent. We, there's still a lot of widows. Scripture is very clear about our responsibility to, uh, to widows. Isaiah said, seek justice, encourage the oppressed, defend the cause of the fatherless, plead the cause of the widow. They're going to want to look out for them. They're very often helpless. Law can't do much for them. Certainly couldn't in this in this day. They're all alone. In those days, women couldn't go out and work. They had they had th- one of three options. They, they they either had to go home to someone who would take care of them, or become prostitutes, or somebody else had to protect them. And in Israel, in the case of Israel, it was the community that took care of them. In the New Testament, it was the church that became their home. And in Paul's day, they actually formed orders of widows who were supported by the church. That's what Paul means by honor them. He uses a word that later refers to remuneration when he talks about elders. That's where our word honorarium comes from. He, 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 they are to be supported financially and given a place of ministry within the congregation. That's why he's so concerned that, that they, they not support women that have that entertain themselves with a lavish uh, lifestyle. In other words, don't subsidize that kind of affluent lifestyle. If they have means and resources, you don't have to support them. They can support themselves. There were women in the church that were wealthy. They could support themselves. uh, Widowed women that were wealthy and could support themselves. But, he says, there are certain women who are entitled to support. And he lays out the uh, the basis for that in those verses that I read. Uh, the first is that they must be truly alone, no surviving family, because if they have a family, the family ought to be taking care of them. Secondly, they ought to be sixty years of old, uh, sixty years of age or older, because in that culture, that was the time at which a woman was considered to be an, an older woman and past the age of marriage. Matter of fact, Paul's word, as I read, to younger women, uh, younger widows, is get married. Okay. Uh, that's interesting. That's always Paul's Paul's solution to uh, some of these difficult situations. He advises them to get married. But beyond the point of 60, it's not likely that they will get married. And so they, they need to be supported by the church. That was the second thing. They had to be 60 years of age or older. Third, the wife of... Of one man, that is a faithful woman, while she was uh, while she was married, faithful to the husband that that she had. I ask you: Is faithfulness important in in ministry and in other positions of leadership? You bet your life it is, because if someone is not faithful in their own home, they're not going to be faithful in the household of God. Period. And that's true not only of of the church; it's true of the state as well current flap over what happens in my private life is of no consequence is simply not true. As C.S. Lewis says, there are no private matters. 
know, particularly if you're in a, a position of uh, public uh, leadership. So very important that they be faithful, and then that they be characterized by good works. And if you notice, these are all these are all demonstrations of a servant heart, brought up children, take care of orphans, brought them into the home, cared for them, showed hospitality. Because inns were filthy places in those days. Strangers had no place to stay. So these, these women had taken them in. Wonderful way to evangelize. Rather than go door to door and pass out tracts, take people into your home. Let them see the difference that Christ has made in the way you relate to your, to your family. Uh, washing the feet of the saints, which I said is a mark of, of humble service. Humility is our Lord's mode on down his hands and knees, washing the feet of the disciples. Uh, helping those in trouble and distress, devoting herself to all kinds of beautiful deeds. Giving aid to the needy, taking in the homeless, counseling the brokenhearted, sheltering the battered and abused. Now, if these women were entitled to support. They were brought into the church, they were cared for, they were loved, they were supported, and they were put to work. <laughs> they didn't sit around twiddle their thumbs. They did what Titus uh, uh, tells the older women to do, or what Paul tells the older women to do in, in Titus. Uh, he says to Titus, you must teach what, you, what is in accord with sound doctrine. Teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, to be pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. These older women were brought into the church, and they became the mentors, the teachers, the counselors, for the younger women within the church. Now, I want to introduce you to two widows, two very special people in my life, Carolyn Friend and Alice George. Careful to tell you, Alice, uh, Carolyn Friend is not yet 60 years of age, so we can't enroll her in this. Uh, but she is enrolled in the sense that her heart is given to service. And I have asked these two women to come up and just take a few minutes each and tell you what they're doing. It is downright exciting. So, where are you, Carolyn? I didn't see you. When you, Ah, there you are. Good. And then Alice George is right down here. And Thank you. It will soon be 11 years since I found myself suddenly and unexpectedly a widow. Though we had discussed the possibility of an untimely death, we certainly did not have it in our current or long-range agenda. We had other plans. When I first found he had died... As he was sitting reading, there was an overwhelming calm and peace and comfort from God. As I stood there, the girls were still living at home, and they joined me, and we cried together, and we read a song together. And as I was so confused and in such shock, I remember clearly rambling about, what am I going to do with my life? What will I do with all my time? And the girls gently reminded me I would have more time for ministry and Bible studies. In the days and weeks and months and years that followed, I had many fears to work through. There was fear of the future, my health. I had some health problems, and I didn't know how to handle my financial situation, and also very fearful about being alone. There were disappointments as I thought about the things we would miss out on doing together, weddings and graduations and grandparenting. 
I felt very angry at Byrne for skipping out on me in our life. And I I dwelt on that anger, but one morning as I was putting my makeup on there in the bathroom, crying, just really mad. Very difficult to put mascara on when you're crying. (laughs) But you know, the thought came to me, I wasn't angry at Byrne, I was angry at God. God was the one in control of my life. He was sovereign over my circumstance. And as I nailed that down where my anger was really directed, it was, I was able to deal with it. I could confess it and move toward God and changing that anger. It was an extremely lonely time. I had lost my best friend and my companion of 25 years. We were together most of the time because we even worked together. I had read years before a book of Brother Lawrence's writings on practicing the presence of God, and it seemed as though I made a choice that I would take God as my best friend. I just, Lord, I want you to be my best friend. And I decided to begin to practice his presence. I, there was a bed, a chair beside my bed, and I'd say, Now, Lord, you're sitting here with me tonight, aren't you? And so many places. I'd just remind myself, actually, that he was there. But especially in my car. It became my safe place. And as I would go to and from work, I didn't want to go to work, and I didn't want to go home, and I would cry. But I'd remind the Lord, Now, you're right here with me, aren't you? And we'd cry together, and it became so precious that I looked forward to longer road trips so I had more time alone with him. Now, I'm not telling you that the hurt and the pain and the struggle of adjusting to a new lifestyle went away. I still dealt with that, but not alone. I just took him right through that painful time with me. There were things, those fears, things I didn't want to face. I I couldn't stand the thought of going back to that office where we had been together. And one day, it seemed as though the Lord suggested, let's go back now, Carolyn. And I, I said, well, okay, but I'll hold your hand and we'll just do this together. And I went back. The office had been moved. It was vacant. But I just stood there and I felt the feelings along with God of the past there. Then another time I was driving down Alpine. I could not stand the thought of another man sitting at my husband's desk. It it just didn't seem right. And that little suggestion came, let's go back to that office. And so again, I took his hand and we went back and I sat there and talked to the new man at my husband's desk. He was always with me. He still is. He gives me courage and strength and comfort to just walk on. Now there were times when I felt like I'm going to lose it. I'm falling apart. It just felt like melted butter, just fading away. You know that there's this little poster of a kitty just barely hanging on, and it says, hang in there, baby. Well, I visualized myself literally hanging on. I said, Jesus, I'm going to hang on. I'm not going to let go. And you know what was really interesting? The next year in women's Bible studies, we were studying from the book of Isaiah, and I found God was holding me. My fingers were numb from hanging on so tightly, and I didn't have to. He was holding me. As he became more and more dear and real to me, his grace, his mercy, and he gave me hope, I wanted to pass it on. It was an exciting thing to me, and God began to give me opportunities. One of the women's Bible studies, the leader had to leave there just a few months after Byrne died, and I was asked to come in and lead that. And right in the midst of my struggle and pain, I went in there, and I was able to come alongside them, but they came alongside me. And he hasn't quit giving me opportunities regularly. 
I, I get the opportunity to come along and encourage other women as they walk with God. As I look back at, over this, this time, and especially that immediate intense pain, you know, the pain, I remember the pain, but what stands out most clearly to me is the marvelous grace of God that he would walk with me and just help me get through this muddled time. I like to ask things like, what? What, what are you trying to teach me, Lord? Or why is this happening? Why, why at this time in my life? Now, I could speculate on that, but I don't know those answers. God does. But the one thing he is showing me, he showed me then and he continues to, is who is in charge of my life and who will walk with me through these times. I'm not about to fall into the trap and suggest you guess my age. Close examination has nothing to do with age and ladies and anything else. My mother used to say that a lady that will tell her age will tell anything, and I'm not about to fall into that trap. (laughs) Unlike my friend Carolyn, I did not have the trauma of a sudden death. We had time. Mercifully, four years beyond the time that the doctor had predicted my husband would not live. So we had a planning time, which was most helpful for us, and we were able to scale down in the area of a larger home to a smaller and go into a community where there were retirees just like us. In the four years that we were there, we had opportunity to sound the depth of their spiritual lives, and in that direction was the way that God sent me after my husband's death. On the 30th of April of the year that he died, I was on my way to church. I happened to remember it very well because the next day would have been our wedding anniversary. And so I was indulging in nostalgia and memory. And by the time I reached church, I was wondering if the best years of my life were over. But, you know, when I came to the Lord, his words became spirit and life to me. And he knew exactly what I was thinking, and he was ready for me. And when I came into the church, the program that was handed to me said, Do not call to mind the former things, nor ponder the things of the past. Behold, I will do something new. Isaiah 43, 18, 19. And I turned the page on the beginning of a new life with the Savior in a different way. I told you that we were in a retirement community. We had had ample opportunity to talk to our neighbors and discover where they were for the most part. Their experience of the Lord was shallow, so a Bible study was begun under the Lord's direction for the women, which was a safe area for me. And that lasted about a year and a half. Now, I would like to tell you that there were real dramatic results from that. There weren't, but there are still things happening that came out of that that indicate the spirituality is having its way in my neighborhood and with the women. Things like this will happen. They will stop at the house ostensibly to bring my mail They come in and we have a time of prayer for a real problem that they may be having. So God is doing a work of grace still in my neighborhood. One of the things that has always troubled me in my relationship with the Lord was the story of the man whose master went away. And when he came back, he had done the right things with the treasure that the Lord had given him to work with. Well done, now good and faithful servants simply did not apply to me. And I was very uncomfortable with that. And so I asked the Lord for something that would apply to me in my situation. 
And graciously he gave it to me one day when I was reading the account of Mary's anointing of the Lord, as he said, for his burial. And when the disciples were grumbling about the fact that you should have taken the money and done something else, the ointment and done something else with the money she got from it, Jesus defended her. And he said, let her alone. And then he told them why she had done it. But the last line that recommended itself was for me. Five words. Jesus said, she did what she could. And that was for me. And since that day, when I read that and got my direction from my Lord, and incidentally, my new husband, because in Isaiah 54, 5, you women who are widowed know this verse because many of my friends do. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. He's the one I take direction from. Did you ever have a perfect husband? Don't answer that. I've got one. I have a perfect husband. He never lets me down. He never gives me up. He knows everything I need before I even ask, and he's ready with it for me. I have a little prayer that's on the front of my uh, dresser, and it goes something like this. All through this day, O Lord, let me touch as many lives as possible for thee. And every life that I touch, do thou by thy Holy Spirit quicken, whether by the word that I speak, the prayer that I breathe, the letters that I write, or the word that the life that I live, for Jesus' sake. That's my goal. It can be yours with much and happy satisfaction with your new husband. That's great. Thank you. Oh, that's great. Thank you. Well, these women have spoken far more eloquently on the subject than anything I could say. You know, in my opinion, most people don't get old. They just get obsolete. There's no reason that you can't serve God powerfully to the end of your days. As a friend of mine says, have a blast while you last. <laughs> Go out in flame. <laughs> If you're wondering what to do with your life, here are two women that have found real meaning and significance in their lives. You know, some of your your children are out of the nest, may even still have a mate, but you're you find there's a lot of time on your hands and you're wondering what to do with it and you're thinking about going back to work and in some cases of course that's necessary, but if you don't have to go back to work, if you don't need the money, and you're just looking for something to do. Here is a whole congregation that needs the wisdom, the gifts, the abilities, the skills, the energy that God has given to you. And I would encourage you to pray about where you can invest meaningfully for eternity throughout the rest of your of your days. Let's pray. Lord, put us to your intended use. Don't let us wither and waste away. Help us to make every moment of the years we have have left matter. We ask in Jesus' name.